parts of as we have previously and just run around a little bit about the city as you can see there it's um, the next one round going clockwise around the cities to which uh, Christ writes uh, if we move on to the next one it's uh, a lies in a valley at the foot of a mountainous plateau in what is now west central Turkey uh, the low dark hill in the foreground if you can just see it there with the light of the uh, skies above it um, is the area of the ancient city the kings of Pergamon founded Philadelphia as an outpost of their realm in the 2nd century BC the town was located along an important travel route that linked Pergamon in the north where Laodicea in the south by New Testament times Philadelphia was part of the Roman province of Asia the town was devastated by an earthquake remember the same one as uh, destroyed uh, Sardis we looked at last time and rebuilt with the help from the Emperor Tiberius like other towns in the region Philadelphia prospered through agriculture and related industries uh, the soil in the valley was suited to growing vines making wine production uh, sorry, wine production important the flocks that grazed in the area supplied wool and hides for textiles and leather production the description from Philadelphia mentions a number of gods and goddesses Zeus, the chief god was said to have commanded people to be pure and to refrain from deceit, murder, theft adultery and other types of evil uh, there was an uh, altar to Hestia the goddess of, uh, of hearth and home and the inscription also mentions the so-called saviour gods including good fortune, virtue, health and other deities emperor worship like Sardis, Philadelphia enjoyed long and favourable relationships with Rome a local cult devoted to Caesar Augustus and Rome was established here in 27-26 BC after the emperor Tiberius helped the city rebuild after the earthquake the city also called itself Neo-Caesarea to show its gratitude during the reign of Vesperian uh, who came from the Flavian family the city showed its devotion to the emperor by calling itself Philadelphia Flavia there was a Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia in the late 1st century uh, 3rd century inscription from a nearby town apologies for the grammar also mentions the synagogue indicating that a Jewish community lived in the area for a long time Okay. so the problems they faced by and large were the same problems as faced by the other churches uh, several in common they'd had a prior earthquake uh, to, from the Jewish community um, either to accommodate and bring into their worship certain of the Jewish ceremonial aspects of their law or indeed to abandon Christianity and revert to Judaism however they respond very differently at least very differently to some of those other churches do you remember last time there was Sardis that had built this great reputation uh, they had this great view of themselves and others round about had this great view of them they were the church if you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to be a Christian, if you wanted to go to a church, Sardis was the place to go to. They had it all. And yet God looks at them, Christ looks at them and says, you're dead. And here, uh, when he comes to Philadelphia, uh, verse 8, his description of them is that they've got little power. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one can shut. I know that you have but little power. They haven't got a great reputation. I don't know what's included in little power, but presumably... They're a small church. They've not got great numbers of people. 
Uh, they've got small resources. They haven't got the wealth of Sardis. They haven't got the voice of Sardis. They haven't got the reputation of Sardis. No, they've got but little power. What a contrast. Do you remember the question we posed ourselves last week? If we had a reputation, a desire for a reputation, as individuals, as in a church, what would that reputation be that we desired? Well, Sardis had their reputation. And Christ says, but you're dead. Philadelphia have got no reputation in the eyes of the world or even in their own eyes. And Christ recognises how small and poor they are in the world's eyes. But what he promises them, oh, let's pray that we get our priorities and our goals right. So easy for us to get sidetracked, isn't it? It's so easy for us to long after things that seem so important to us and are of no importance to God at all, or worse, are of the world. When Christ calls us, this is where our priorities should be. This is what it should all be about. Don't look to influence wealth, numbers or popularity, but delight in our weakness. This was the church of little power. And what does Paul say? It's in my weakness that Christ's strength is displayed. And that was certainly going to be true for this church. So let's see what they've got right. Indeed, that's all Christ talks of. He doesn't say a single thing that they've got wrong. They've got everything right as far as Christ is concerned in terms of what he wants to challenge them over. Three things are itemized here that they got right. First of all, in verse 8, they kept his word. They were not just the Bible-believing Christians, but they were Bible-obeying Christians. Now, one should follow from the other, isn't it? We should read God's word, we should believe what we read, and then as we believe it, we should obey it. Tragically, of course, in the church, that doesn't always follow. People will say, I believe the Bible, and you ask them on any point in it, they'll say, I absolutely, I believe that, God said it. But they don't then obey it. No, this church were different. They not only knew God's word, they not only believed God's word, but verse 8, they kept God's word. And our generation and our culture, obedience, has been somewhat relegated within the church, hasn't it? You'd almost think it was an optional extra, the way some Christians speak. Let me remind you what Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Go down a few verses, verse 23 of John 14. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Going to the next chapter, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. When John writes his first epistle, 1 John 5, 3, he says this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. My friend, obedience is not optional. It's not something that God suggests or God encourages. It's what God absolutely commands. That's why they're called commandments. You cannot claim to love Christ if you do not strive to obey his commandments. And you cannot say, but I've tried and it's impossible, because here before us we've got the example of a church who tried and did it. Christ commends them for it. You've kept my word. The second thing they've got right is this, verse 8. They didn't deny his name. You have not denied my name. They're living in difficult times. 
They're living in times of trial. They're living in times of persecution. But they wear the badge of faith with pride. They don't come to church on Sundays and then hide their faith through the rest of the week. They're upfront about it. They're open about it. They stand up in the marketplace, in their workplace, in their homes, wherever it might be. I belong to Jesus Christ. They've not denied his name. They're not ashamed of Christ. My friends, we're under increasing pressure to go quiet on Christ, aren't we? Um, Someone was telling me, now, dear, dear, isn't my memory shocking? Because I've already forgotten who told me. Was it Hannah? Someone was telling me about um, uh, a vicar who wrote up and complained about the blasphemy on um, it was only this morning someone was telling me Top Gear yes it was you was telling me and she knows the vicar who wrote up and complained about the blasphemy on it and all the bad press he got and all the hate mail he got and everything else for ages afterwards because of this we're just under such pressure aren't we not to stand with Christ well here's a church where the individual stood with Christ. They were not ashamed of him. They were not ashamed to own him. They were not ashamed to stand with him. They didn't deny his name. And then thirdly, verse 10, they endured patiently because you have kept my word about patient endurance. They endured patiently. We say patience is a virtue, don't we? God puts it that patience is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. The part of Holy Spirit's work within us is to produce in us patience. And this church were a patient church, but patient in endurance. It wasn't just that they were waiting on the Lord. It wasn't just that they were faithful to the Lord. It wasn't just that they acknowledged his name. They did it under persecution. They endured patiently. However hard we think it's getting in our land, it's nothing compared with what it was there and it's nothing compared with what many of our brothers and sisters face today in other parts of the world, is it? It may well come. And the question is this. Do we endure patiently? I mean, we say, well, I'm patient about my health or I'm patient about this or that. No, 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 no. Do we patiently honour Christ in an increasingly hostile world? These Christians did. And there are two great obstacles to contend with in that. The first, we've already looked at verse 8, they've got little power. Now, we don't know all that that involves, but I imagine they were a church much like us tonight. And yet Christ cannot say a word against them and he says this in favour of them. They've kept his word, they've owned his name and they've endured patiently. And yet isn't it so easy to do the very opposite? Isn't it so easy to become discouraged because there aren't more to share the burden of the work? Can you imagine them looking this Sardis just up the road? If only we'd got the people they've got at Sardis. Think what we could do then. If only we had the resources that they've got at Sardis. If only we had the reputation and the opportunities they've got at Sardis. So easy to think like that, isn't it? When we're mindful of the fact that we haven't, we've got but little power. We get discouraged because 
we haven't got the resources in gifting or the resources in finance. I'm one of those people, I don't know about you, who can dream amazing projects that we could do for the Lord if we had the money to do it. And you say, if only we had that. Think what we could do for the Lord. You become discouraged because you go somewhere else and they ask you what church you're from and they tell you and they say, never heard of it. And you think, oh, really? It's very easy to become discouraged, isn't it? When you're only a church of little power. But that isn't the way Christ sees it. He looks at this mega church of Sardis and says, you're dead. And then he looks at Philadelphia, who in comparison in the world's view is the dead one of the two, and he says, you've only got little power, but I've got nothing but praise for you. You've kept my word, you've acknowledged the Saviour's name, you've owned his name, you stand by Christ, and you're enduring patiently. What more do you think I want of you? That's what you're there to do. And there's a second real obstacle, not only have they got little power, but verse 9, they're under attack from so-called Jews. Men and women who by nationality, by blood, are Jews, they're of the Jewish uh, nationality, but are not true believers, because if they were, they would have embraced Christianity. They're opposing God by opposing the Christ. And they're constantly getting at this small church. And we don't know in what manner they're doing it because Jesus doesn't elaborate. I mean, it's very likely that they were getting them excluded from the temple, getting them excluded from a lot of the social life of the Jewish people there, maybe constantly bombarding them with, uh, you're not proper Jews, God doesn't really love you because you've gone off into this cult belief in Christ rather than, than... the fact that there is only one God who is Yahweh, who is in one person, which of course he's not. And this church is having to put up with it all. And they've got no resources to seemingly rise above it. And Christ says, but you're doing what I put you there to do. You're keeping my word. You're acknowledging the Saviour. You're standing by Christ. And you're enduring patiently. My friends, it may sound like I'm advocating and speaking in favour of being a small church. I'm certainly not. Would I love it if the Lord was to bless us by filling this building next week? Would I love it if God suddenly opened immeasurable resources to us as a church so that we could do all that we could do? But my friends, the point is, whether he does or whether he doesn't, is absolutely irrelevant to us doing what God has put us here to do. What he calls us to do is to keep his word, to acknowledge Christ, to stand for Christ in society and to endure patiently. And it doesn't matter whether we've got all the resources of a mega church of hundreds of thousands or we're a little church of even three or four. We can honour the Lord in that. And that's what matters. Look what Christ will give them. The first one, an open door for evangelism. Well, that sort of should come as no surprise to us that we're going to discover this because if we go back to verse 7 where where the letter starts, what do we read? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
once again, the way Christ describes himself is a lead-in to what he's going to say to them. It's got to do with opening and shutting things. Now, to make sense of what he's saying there, of course, we need to go back into the Old Testament. We need to go back into the book of Isaiah, but to chapter 22. And Isaiah 22, you remember that Isaiah tells Shebna, the king's treasurer and chief official, that his office is going to be taken away from him and given to Eliakim. And this is what we read in Isaiah 22, verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. In other words, it was a sign of authority. If you were the bearer of this key, you chose who came into the king's presence and who didn't. It was in your hands and your hands alone. You said, yes, you may enter the king's presence and you came in. No, you may not enter the king's presence and you were shut out. And Christ says, that is my authority. I and I alone dictate who comes to the presence of God and who doesn't. And he says, and in light of that, what I'm going to give to you is an open door. What an amazing promise. What Christ is reminding them is that he is solely in charge of every aspect of saving people. He he gives the, the... Ability to, to understand scripture. He calls it's the, the regeneration within us by Holy Spirit. He gives us the faith to believe. He gives us the humility to repent. He makes Christ so attractive before us by taking away the blinding of Satan from our minds. He gives an open door for evangelism. And he saves. And what Christ is here saying to this church is, look, you might be so small. You might be so weak. You might look around and say, but we haven't got anything. How on earth are we going to do the work of the Lord? Well, guess what? I'm just going to open the door for you. I'm going to give you an open door. You know, you're just going to talk to people about Christ and they're going to believe it and be saved because I will work as you speak. You're not going to need resources to do it. You're not going to need great numbers to do it. You've simply got to trust me and go out there and do it and I will open the door for you. What an amazing promise. My friends, we have so many opportunities to speak for Christ, don't we, to those who don't know him. First and foremost, we've got our private opportunities. That's where the church primarily works in evangelism. That we go out from the church into the world and preach the gospel. And and look at the opportunities we have to do that, each one of us. In, In our workplaces, those of us are still working. In our homes where there are unsafe people. In our community... Uh, through clubs, I, I mean, I'll be at a beekeeping club tomorrow and as far as I know, there's perhaps one other person there who's a Christian. M- no, sorry, not where I'm going tomorrow night, as far as I know, there aren't any. Uh, you know, the opportunities that we have to share the gospel with someone. We don't need to manufacture them, they're there all around us. We don't need to buy them, they don't cost us anything. We, we don't need to have more people in order to find them, they're there. And then we have the opportunities that we have as a church. We have music mayhem. We have coffee morning. We'll be having a kids' Easter celebration in a few weeks' time. 
God willing, we'll have Roger come and to help us with a mission next year. We have wonderful opportunities to share the gospel. What is it we need? We need Christ to open the door. We need Christ to make what we do effective. And that is what Christ is promising this church here. You do what you're doing. Keep my word. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Stand up and identify with Christ. Talk about Christ. Share Christ. Endure whatever comes at you as a result of that, patiently. And I will cause it to be effective. I will produce the fruit that you can't make. I will bring about conversions. I will save people through your witness. Isn't that what we greatly desire? To see sinners saved. And the lesson here for us is surely this. It's not about resources. It's not about how many workers we've got. It's not about what programs we come up with. It's about this, whether or not we honour Christ in our lives, in the church and out there in society. It's whether about whether we're prepared to identify with Christ out there and speak for Christ out there. And if we will, Christ says, I will open the door for you. What more do you need? What an amazing promise. But there's more. Verse 10 I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Protection from trial. Now I guess there will always be difference of opinion as to how we understand this. I mean it depends very much on your, if I use the the big word, eschatological position, where what you believe about the return of Jesus Christ, how how you believe all those things are going to unfold, will probably determine how you understand what Christ is saying here. Can I suggest you that it just means as simply as this, that throughout the time between Christ's attention and ascension and Christ's return, there are going to be wave after wave after wave of persecution hidden the church. It was there from the Romans. It's been there ever since. As one empire falls, another rises. As one religion falls, another rises. Islam, of course, now is the big global Uh, body that moves against Christ and what is Christ promising that if we get it right he will keep us from the damage that that hour will bring he will protect those who are truly his honour Christ and Christ will keep you isn't the temptation to think the other way problems arise uh, uh, pressure arises persecution arises thing what I need to do is to go quiet on Christ that's the way to stay safe no says Jesus stand up for me that's the way to stand safe don't be ashamed of me and I will protect you I will keep you from that hour and then victory over enemies verse 9 what does he say behold I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. He says, I'll give you the victory over these enemies, these Jews who think that they are the people that I'm blessing, that think that they are the ones that are right with me. I will cause them to come and acknowledge that they are wrong, you are right, and it is you that I love. It's very easy to... Be very hurt by what other people say, isn't it? When I'm just trying to honour Christ and people ridicule you, people mock you, 
people swear at you people abuse you and, and you think or do something to them you know zap them just just my friends the day's coming when Jesus Christ will return and appear in all glory and every knee will bow before him and every person alive now dead and buried together will stand before him and they will get down on their knees and they will say Jesus Christ is Lord if they've been the most vile atheistic blasphemer who has spent their whole life trying to destroy the body of Jesus Christ they will get down on their knees and say I was wrong Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ will be vindicated and so will his church on the day that he comes to be marvelled at amongst his people and that includes you says 2 Thessalonians 1 if your faith is in Christ and finally verse 12 eternal security what does it say the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from my father out of heaven and my own new name it's all about security I will stamp him with my name it's never going to get lost never going to be thrown out he, he will bear my name stamped into him and he will be a pillar now of course what we've got to understand is that the uh, Philadelphia as we saw when we opened has just been devastated by an earthquake the one thing that you don't find when he's writing in Philadelphia were pillars that worked the pillars have all fallen over disaster you know you put them up to support your building along comes the earthquake and they all fall over and Christ says yeah but I'm going to make you like a pillar that doesn't fall over this is about permanence this is about steadfastness this is about eternal security he says you will be in heaven like a pillar of the temple that stands forever with the name of God the Father Jesus Christ the Son and the church stamped on you and you will be secure for all times my friends is this the future that we want hope it is is this the future that we're praying for that we'll have an open door for evangelism while we're here on earth that, that we'll be protected from the trials as we face them for Christ's sake that, that we'll finally see that ultimate victory over our enemies and over God's enemies and that when all said and done we will enter into the eternal rest of our Lord and Saviour Christ says I'll tell you how to be sure of it live like the church at Philadelphia keep my word own my name stand up before men and say I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of it he is my Lord he is my Saviour he is my King he is God of Gods and Lord of Lords you need him get down on your knees and worship him and we endure patiently whatever comes at us as a result of that and we honour Christ whether it's easy or hard we're going to sing together 
in light of that, where, O grave,